Hi, I'm Linda McGlasson, and this is another installment of the Information Security Media Group's podcast series. Today, we're speaking with Aaron Amy, a well-known expert in email security. He is the author of the U.S. Secret Service San Francisco Electronic Crimes Task Force report on anti-phishing technology, as well as the reports on online identity theft countermeasures and crimeware from the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. Aaron has been involved as a consultant in anti-spam and anti-phishing technologies for several years and has presented security research at numerous conferences and research forums. Most recently, he contributed several chapters to Phishing and Countermeasures, published this year by Wiley Publishing. In addition to his work in security, Aaron has had a long and varied career, including work in creating networking, storage, e-commerce, education, data compression, multimedia, vision, machine learning, operating systems, and music analysis. He has served as a researcher, engineer, and executive. Now, as a managing director of Radix Labs, Aaron provides consulting services and serves as a technical expert in technology litigation. Aaron is also the Executive Vice President of Technology at Six Apart, the blogging technology leader. Hi, Aaron. Hi, pleasure to be here. Um, well, let's go right into these questions that uh, we've got on our minds. Uh, Aaron, can you tell our audience what's the latest uh, news on the crimeware and phishing fronts these days? Sure, absolutely. I think the biggest thing that's happening right now uh, is uh, the ongoing transition from purely deception-based attacks, where you're getting an email that just pretends to be from your bank, to very sophisticated crimeware, which provides all kinds of different uh, attack vectors on a, on a user, in which uh, credentials can be stolen, transactions can be generated, uh, DNS can be hijacked so that you're going to your bank site and you actually end up uh, somewhere else, even if you're doing the right thing as a user, uh, and so on. So. We're seeing on the conventional deception at attacks that uh, they're using blacklist-busting URLs. It's a game of whack-a-mole where blacklisting and phishing toolbars and so on are being integrated into browsers. So what's happening is uh, phishers are using unique subdomains for each email or for groups of, of emails uh, to avoid being put on the blacklist. We're seeing uh, more farming attacks. We're seeing man-in-the-middle attacks, um, which will render the uh, token that are used for two-factor authentication, significantly less effective, uh, for example. Um, and we're seeing a lot of work being done in research uh, on wireless-based attacks, uh, for example, attacks in which a, router, a wireless router with a default password could be reprogrammed using a malicious JavaScript to point to a DNS server, uh, which would direct you, instead of to your bank site, um, to, uh, to, to a site that has nothing to do with your bank. And using JavaScript only, uh, you can actually uh, get any user that you can lure onto a malicious website um, to have their DNS compromised to enable farming. So I think there are some interesting things happening right now, and uh, there are even scarier attacks on the horizon. One other thing I'd point to um, is what a lot of people are calling spear phishing, which is... Um, more targeted phishing attacks. So we, we saw this, for example, in one case where a, a DSL store was broken into uh, and its customer database was compromised. Well, once you have 
not only email addresses, but you know where those email addresses came from, you can then craft a very specific attack. So in these cases, these people were sent emails saying, you know, there's a problem with your order, and they were able to show real order information. And then you have to come to this website uh, to input additional information, and then they'd, they'd fish them on that website. Well, since it was a real order that they'd placed, uh, that was a, a very convincing token of credibility, and a lot of people got caught in that. And I think we'll see more of these kinds of uh, composition attacks. Okay. Um, speaking of different uh, avenues where fishers are getting their prey, um, why? What are some of the reasons that the average reaser, user or reader of emails out there can't uh, always sniff out those fishy emails? Sure. So um, it's an interesting question because it involves a lot of different factors. So I, I think the first thing to say is that users don't really understand the finer points of authentication, of knowing that they're on the right website and so on, uh, or that they're or that they're looking at an email from the right party. And I would argue that users shouldn't have to understand and can't be expected to understand them. So I don't think that a, just a reliance on educating users on the assumption that it's these dumb users that's the problem uh, is going to be successful. I don't think users are dumb. I just think that things aren't well set up uh, for users to easily understand things. Um, simple example, if you're in the real world, in the real physical world, and you're looking at a building that says it's a bank, it's pretty easy to visually tell with pretty decent reliability whether it's really a bank. You know, Is it a big, gleaming edifice of marble? Well, if so, it probably is. If it's a guy on a street corner with a cardboard box, it probably isn't a bank. And one of the problems that we have is that the online equivalent of the guy on the corner with a box can steal the bank website and look exactly the same as the bank. Uh, and the only differences are things that are very obscure to the user. They're things like, oh, well, look for the SSL lock icon in a very particular location in the Chrome. Well, it turns out users don't know uh, that it matters where the lock icon is. If it occurs on the page, it also gives them an increased sense of security. If it's the favicon and, and appears on the left side of the URL instead of the right side of the URL, they don't know how to distinguish those kinds of things. A lot of our security indicia are not designed for human recognition. Uh, we've, we've evolved over a very long period of time to make very sophisticated trust decisions in the offline world, and the online world has done a very poor job so far and in fact, the general technology uh, arena has done a very, very poor job so far of uh, helping users to figure out what they should trust online. Um, I think financial institutions compound the problem by employing very poor practices in a lot of their customer communication. I'm talking about things like emails from banks that contain clickable links, uh, where the links uh, are obfuscated, you know, really long links that are hard for a user to understand, um, and they sometimes don't even go to the domain that you'd expect for a bank. They go off to some strange domain name that looks a little bit like a phishing domain or just like a phishing domain. Um, they, don't, they don't even visibly use SSL on the login screen, hard though it is for users to understand it. It's easier if it's, if it's generally used, and oftentimes the login screen does not, uh, it uses SSL for the submitted form data with a username and password, but the user can't see the lock when it's actually entering that data. Um, users tend to learn from what they do rather than from what they're told. So they'll learn a lot better from good practices being followed by a financial institution and seeing a deviation from that from a phishing site than they will from, um, uh, from just being told by a financial institution uh, what to do. So I think that's kind of a rundown of some of the reasons that the situation is difficult for users. Okay, and um, going, going on to the next question, um, obviously phishing and crime where 
uh, are things that uh, financial institutions are sometimes thinking constantly about. But are there other things that they should be worried about in terms of uh, cybercrime? Yeah, well, I think that um, I think that in terms of cybercrime, those are those are very large threats. Um, I, I also think that you know there's a consumer perception sometimes that the, that phishing and so on are are, are the big problems, uh, and we have very high number of estimates there. And, and you know, people should understand it's not the largest source of losses uh, for, for for banks. It's certainly dwarfed by bad credit decisions and uh, and other forms of fraud are comparable to or greater than size. But but phishing ha- has become very big. Crimeware is very big on a number of, of levels. It's not. It's it's very large in attacks against individuals. It's also a very significant uh, risk in you know, transaction generators that get put into uh, payment processing centers and, and so on, uh, often through security holes um, in those types of places. Uh, there are a lot of, of threats in the online world, as well as the typical uh, data theft and, and you know simple insider compromises. Always need to be paid attention to. Also, you know there's there's an old question. You know how do you make a a system so secure that it would take $50 million to break in? And the answer is, well, you can't, because you can always pay somebody on the inside $1 million and, and get the data. Um, and certainly, um, you know, this is not a new thing to, uh, to financial institutions, um, but it's something that sometimes people focus narrowly on cybersecurity, uh, don't give full consideration to. I, I would say also that um, phishing and other forms of cybercrime are especially scary because they're growing very fast relative to other kinds of fraud, um, and because ultimately it has the potential to erode trust in online banking. Uh, certainly people who have been stung by phishing are much less likely to continue with online banking, um, but also just generate some of the publicity around it uh, has the potential to have that impact. So it, it's receiving uh, important uh, uh, priority consideration because it has the possibility to threaten a lot of the infrastructure that's been built up. And as you noted before, it's not always the banks themselves that are uh, the victims of the fish, but it's other uh, companies or like the DSL company that you had mentioned before. Um, Going on, what can financial institutions do to mitigate some of the threats that uh, have been uh, coming out as of late uh, that are posed by zero-day vulnerabilities? Well, zero-day vulnerabilities in particular are an interesting question because um, there are some things that financial institutions could potentially do. Um, Frankly, I think operating system vendors and other software vendors have in some ways more to contribute here. Um, But one one thing, and that's just because they're, they're situated um, to, to actually respond to the attacks and to deploy technology that, that, uh, that better addresses those attacks. Financial institutions are rightly hesitant um, to, uh, to be providing patches or otherwise uh, trying to um, uh, you know, get people uh, up to date and running security technologies. And I think that's the correct stance because um, if they try to get users to install executables, uh, then that becomes something that users are accustomed to, and they will tend to install executables more often from uh, from illegitimate sources as well. So a true zero-day vulnerability is one that there isn't a patch for at the time it comes out. Um, this is something that happens a fair amount, although the vast majority of the compromises occur through um, uh, through through vulnerabilities that have already been discovered and patched, but where the users simply haven't updated their machines. 
Um, one thing that that uh, financial institution can potentially do against a zero-day uh, attack, or at least a uh, uh, an attack that is relatively uh, new, is to scan the machines of people who are contacting them. And so, for example, uh, one technology I'm familiar of that that's uh, in development uh, is something called remote harm detection. Um, I think this is something that has um, a very interesting future in front of it um, in terms of being able to figure out at the time a user hits your website, well, have they previously visited websites that are known to distribute malware, uh, for example? And so this is one thing that I think is a very promising direction for financial institutions be, to be able to do um, about, uh, about crimeware in, in general. Um, and we had, you, you had mentioned before the uh, move to stronger authentication methods at financial institutions. Uh, do you see that as helping to further secure uh, their customers? And what would you say needs to be done further? And finally, is mutual authentication the next step? Yeah, so I, I think that absolutely stronger authentication uh, can be extremely helpful. Um, I would place a very significant caveat on that, which is uh, you have to very carefully formulate what it is that you're trying to protect against, and you need to do a careful evaluation of any technology that's under consideration to ensure that it actually defends against your particular threat model. Um, so, you know, for example, uh, tokens that have one-time passcodes or time-varying passcodes um, can be effective in uh, preventing an aftermarket for, uh, for credentials, um, but they're not effective against uh, preventing um, an illicit action from taking place quickly because a man-in-the-middle attack um, can, uh, can take the, the, uh, the authentication token information um, and, and utilize that. Um, similarly, there are a lot of technologies on the market which rely on the user being able to make um, a particular determination about whether an image that's being displayed is correct or, or, or so on and so on. There are a lot of different variants of these. Very few, if any of them, uh, have any solid uh, evidence behind them that they actually work um, when users under realistic conditions um, and under attack um, are, are, are involved. Um, they make a lot of assumptions about what user behavior will be, and if there's one thing that we know about user behavior, it's that it's not incredibly predictable, and you need to carefully study it and understand uh, what, it, what it is going to be in realistic conditions. And a follow-up question, uh, what, what can be done more uh, to provide better security by uh, the companies that uh, produce these operating systems and browsers? that uh, run, run all this? Yeah. So, I mean, this is really interesting um, because I think there are a lot of things, and, and I would give first the caveat that, that these have the same requirements for user testing um, as any technology that a financial, financial institution institute might, uh, might roll out. Um, but, um, you know, one, one thing that's really missing right now is a trusted path, uh, a way that users can have an assurance when they're entering information um, that only the intended recipient of the data can actually use it. Uh, and this is something that really should be provided at the operating system level, could be provided potentially uh, within a browser, uh, uh, but it would, it would have a, a general form, or that, there are a number of proposals, but one possible form for it is to have what's known as a secure attention sequence. So uh, 
You know how when you log into a Windows computer, you have to hit Control-Alt-Delete before you enter your, your uh, username and password? Well, that's so done so to prevent a Trojan from operating. So when you hit Control-Alt-Delete, the operating system, conceptually, is providing a guarantee that you're really talking to the OS and that the user interface you're seeing can't be spoofed. And at that point, you know that that's what you're talking to. Well, you can actually do a similar thing over the Internet. Um, the, the technical details of it are a little bit involved, um, but you can, you can have a, a something over the Internet where you have a guarantee that your data is going to be encrypted using the public key of, 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 of the person whose identity, the institution whose identity is being displayed, um, and that's displayed from, uh, from a, uh, a, a cryptographically signed certificate. Um, and that way, only that intended recipient can actually read the data. So that's something that, that can actually uh, um, be, be done. Uh, I would also say, um, I mentioned earlier that a lot of the uh, indicia that are displayed on, uh, in browsers and so on are not uh, easily intelligible to users. And I would say that a lot of the attempts uh, here by the browser manufacturers have not been exceptionally well motivated um, in terms of how users really respond to them. They've been rolling out phishing toolbars and so on um, that it looks like they don't work exceptionally well. Um, security indicia that are really unspoofable and that are distinguishable by users, uh, and again, I'd stress that that really needs to be proven by usability testing, would be a tremendous step forward. Okay. Um, Moving to the next question, you're involved in several governmental organizations that are working to prevent online fraud, and what are what are they doing? Sure, um, there's a lot of, of work in this area because online fraud is recognized as a financial issue, but also as a law enforcement issue, and as a threat to parts of the, of the nation's critical infrastructure. Um, so, you know, a few examples of the organizations that, that are out there. Um, I'm a member of the Department of Homeland Security uh, Identity Theft Technology Council. Um, they've published a, a couple of papers um, on phishing and on crimeware. Um, you know, they're they're looking at this, um, you know, very much from the point of view of bringing to bringing together top people in academia, uh, corporate executives, uh, technology um, executives, and researchers. And, uh, and coming up with, uh, with good approaches uh, to the technology. The Secret Service has an electronic crimes task force, um, which, uh, which looks at this as sort of a public-private partnership um, to, uh, to have law enforcement and, uh, and industry uh, working together on electronic crimes. Um, the FBI sponsors an organization called InfraGuard, uh, and that is uh, dedicated to protecting the nation's critical infrastructure. Uh, and uh, you know, the financial infrastructure uh, and, uh, and the Internet is, is part of that. Um, so all of these organizations are really looking to provide conduits between law enforcement uh, and private industry so people know where to turn and also to find uh, the best technologies and, uh, and help that come about. The Department of Homeland Security and its um, uh, sub-departments as, as well have done especially a lot of work in uh, providing some early-stage funding also to promising security technologies, which could help mitigate the, uh, the risk. So there's, there's a lot of work going on uh, in that you know, borderline between uh, public and private. Seeing how 80% of our uh, critical infrastructure is privately owned, it's important to protect it. Um, I have a kind of a 
off-the-wall question, but what is something that keeps you up at night in regards to information security? Yeah, I don't think that's um, I don't think that's an off-the-wall question at all. Um, so one one thing is um, there's sensitive information that's being kept in all kinds of unsafe places, right? I mean, there are all sorts of low security sites uh, that are um, you know filled with with credit card data, social security numbers, employment information, uh, all all sorts of things. And and it's actually fairly remarkable that some of some of this information has become extremely public, and there's an aftermarket for this information. And you can see that, for example, uh, uh, you know, got some publicity in the the, the case involving Hewlett Packard's um, uh, board, um, and it's possible to obtain a lot of this information publicly. Um, but also, it's accessible often quite easily. Uh, to hackers, and once people obtain that information, it can be very difficult to uh, to to write to write the wrong, and it's hard to know when it's compromised. Um, another thing that keeps me up at night, uh, strangely enough, is just the lack of, of trusted path. I was talking earlier about the fact that there's just no good mechanism um, for providing an assurance to people about who they're talking to online, and it's possible to uh, um, to subvert that. insomnias step forward. Um, finally, <clears throat> I always like to close with this one question. Um, your words of advice to those information security practi practitioners at financial institutions? Well, the first thing I would say is you know, educate yourself on the, on the threat. You know, join organizations like the Anti-Phishing Working Group, uh, like some of the public-private partnerships that I was talking about earlier. There's been a lot of good academic literature as well, and I think it would be valuable to uh, to familiarize yourself with uh, with that literature. Uh, the next thing I would say is to get on top of your institution's practices. Um, there, I mentioned earlier, a lot of different kinds of, of poor behavior on the part of financial institutions that helps uh, helps make people susceptible to to phishing. Um, it's especially complicated to make sure that good practices are followed by different vendors who may be used for marketing campaigns and, and so on. But this is very important thing for financial institutions to do. Uh, the next thing I would say is formulate your threat model. Uh, it's not uncommon that people will go out looking for vendors when they haven't actually specified clearly what problem it is that they're trying to solve. It's very hard to make an appropriate choice of technology if you're not exactly sure what it's supposed to do. Um, and I would say that you need to evaluate any technology and vendor that you're considering uh, based on those clearly defined threat models and on user studies that show that the technology actually works rather than just a plausible story that it, that it might work. Um, I would I also say you know, push for work at industry consortia like the Financial Services Technology Consortium are doing good, uh, um, good, good work to, uh, to help uh, create sets of recommendations that are, are better motivated um, than just uh, vendor brochures. Um, I would also encourage you to share data. Uh, so the APWG has a phishing data um, uh, network, uh, FSISAC. There are a lot of different places that you can share.
say security can be a subtle area. It, it, it involves a lot of deep technology. It also involves uh, a lot of user behavior. And in any particular area where you're not yourself experienced, it can be very helpful to find people who are knowledgeable in, in that field and, uh, and work with them. Aaron, thank you so much for taking this time out of your day to speak with us and share your thoughts. And I will close. Uh, I'm Linda McGlasson, and this has been another installment of the Information Security Media Group's podcast series. That's all until next time.